0: This is where scientists, philosophers, New Agers, and spiritualists come together to discuss where this world may be heading. Now here's your host, lawyer, philosopher, and the author of The Collapse of Materialism, Philip Camella. Now today we're going to have a uh, really interesting and fun show because we're going to tackle probably the most controversial topic in science, which is also known as Darwinian Evolution. And it's interesting, I think, to note that over the last century, there have been two legal cases concerning the teaching of evolution in schools, and each represents the sign of their respective time. We probably remember the famous Scopes trial, also also known as the Scopes Monkey Trial, in 1925. And in that case, there was a Tennessee law that made it illegal to teach Darwinian evolution in schools. And so people who um, opposed that law set up a plaintiff, a teacher, whose name was John Scopes, who was put on trial for teaching Darwinian evolution in school, violating the Tennessee law. This case made Clarence Darrow famous, the the, uh, famous cross-examiner. He was found guilty, but he was released on a technicality. Okay, so that the Tennessee law, making the teaching of evolution in schools illegal. So over time, as we know, Darwinianism became entrenched in the curriculum, and so now we sort of go the other direction. And there's another trial in 2004. This trial was called Kurtz Miller versus Dover School System, and this time there was a public policy in the dover school system that required the teaching of intelligent design to be taught alongside alongside darwinianism sort of like a competing theory and the court in that case this is the federal court 130 page opinion he found that the teaching of intelligent design in the school violated the establishment clause in the constitution which is that there cannot be a law that favors religion in a public school and so intelligent design was ruled out of the curriculum and so this is the way things have gone over the years or the past century or so and really ever since darwin is that we've set up this dichotomy that you're either a Darwinianism ism or darwinian or you are an intelligent designer or a creationist and it seems as if to a lot of people including me that we probably could use a third choice here Uh, between Darwinianism and creationism. And my guest today has written an amazing book. It's called Evolution 2.0 that does just that. He really attacks both sides of this dichotomy of this debate and comes up with something original. His name is Perry Marshall. He's an author, speaker, engineer, and a renowned business consultant working out of Chicago. Now, what's interesting about Perry is that he's worked in digital communications, control systems, acoustics, and e-commerce, and so he's bringing an original perspective to this debate. He has other books, uh, including 80-20 Sales and Marketing, Ultimate Guide in uh, of Google AdWords, and Industrial Ethernet. He has a degree in electrical engineering and has consulted with more than 300 industries from computer, hardware, and software to heart, healthcare and finance. And so today we're going to be really taking a fresh look at this debate with an original thinker who's outside the box. Uh, Perry, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. And, Philip, thank you for having me on. Um, you've got a pretty interesting list of guests that have been on the show, including John Hans, who introduce us. Uh, John's book is amazing. And and you also, during your, your interview with him, you mentioned several other books that I think are great. You mentioned The Science Delusion by Rupert Sheldrake, great book. You mentioned um you mentioned Biocentrism by Robert Lanza, which um that book led me to hunt down Ben Bella books and get them as a publisher for Evolution 2.0 because they published his book too. And um, you know, I really love this interdisciplinary approach. You're an attorney. Um, attorneys' uh, jobs is whatever the field, whatever the situation, to go hunt and find the facts and defend them. So I think we're going to have a great conversation today.
0: Okay. Well, well, thank you for that. And it's it's uh, it's always refreshing to have an original thinker here. And so let's let's get going here for a second. Which. First of all, what got you interested in this evolution debate?
1: Well, first, I had avoided it for a long time because when you know that there's a very nuanced um, subject that everybody's arguing about and you know you're not an expert and you know you don't have a degree, um, you're you're probably going to tend to um, shy away. Um, but... I ended up getting in an argument with my brother of all people, who, in four years, he had gone from master's degree in theology with uh, from a seminary to missionary to almost atheist, and we're sitting here having this argument, and he has completely turned his worldview upside down, and he's dragging me with him, and this argument had actually been going on for a couple of years, and it had encompassed all kinds of topics, and I was just feeling more and more uncomfortable, and less and less I feel like I, I was certain of anything. And what I ended up grabbing onto uh, as sort of the last edge of the ledge was science, uh, and I guess it's only natural that I would do that because I'm an engineer, and as an engineer, I know that I know that I know certain things, and and I really sort of decided I'm going to let science answer this question for me, and uh, and 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 I'm going to follow the evidence wherever it goes, and I don't know where it's going to take me. Uh, this could make me an atheist. It could make me an agnostic. I suppose it could make me a Buddhist or something uh, else. I I had been a Christian. Uh, that was kind of scary. Maybe this is going to be some like weird arguments around the Thanksgiving table in the future. I don't know. But I I'm I'm going to leap into the void, and and so that's what I did. Um, and I had no idea how fascinating this was going to get. No idea whatsoever,
0: well, I find that one of the problems we have in our modern society, and we have a lot of them, but on the intellectual field, we have a lot of people who just take things for granted, uh, and uh, for example, if Richard Dawkins writes something about evolution, therefore it must be true if Stephen Hawking says something about black holes, therefore we must care about that if the, if the If the leading universities teach. Uh, neo darwinianism then therefore that must be correct and so we go so we we have this problem this is one of my big issues is that we we accept a lot of these scientific theories without question and that is part of that is a major part of the problem and i think part of the fun of this it, and this is this is something i think you do which is that if you say okay time out i'm going to look at this issue this issue of evolution origin of life with an open mind and i 'm going to try to remove my biases my my preconceptions and just look at the facts it 's a very it 's an amazing it 's amazingly interesting and i I thought that 's what what was refreshing about about your beginnings and let 's face it Perry a lot of people are skeptical that that can be done so so how yeah. so so how how did you how did you prepare yourself for this because clearly we all come into big questions with baggage and the older you get the harder it is to get rid of that baggage i think so so what did you
1: do you know a a big part of my professional work is marketing and as a marketer i can tell you that one of the strongest um ways that humans make decisions is social proof right it's human authority like well what what do the authoritative people say, right? Right. What does the Journal of the American Medical Association say? Or what what does Tom Cruise say? This is why celebrities endorse tennis shoes. Okay. So, you know, and it's a big, and for the most part, it's, it's, it's one of the more, it's somewhat reliable. Okay. Um, You know, it's, it seems to put, you know, it seems to work for most people most of the time, but I really had to set that aside because I could sit there and I could watch the ping-pong ball go back and forth between all these authorities. And at some point, you have to go, well, what can I find out? Well, what it really went down to, uh, I had done this before, and I had done it in college writing an acoustics paper. And if anybody's ever seen a Bose Wave radio, for example— um, it uses a very unusual kind of enclosure that engineers call a transmission line. And it's much more complicated and difficult uh, than, than the regular approaches. And I wanted to figure out how to model it. And, and uh, basically, in order to do it, like nobody had really done this um, to my satisfaction. And so I had to start over. And I had to do it from scratch. And, um, and, and the thing about it was you couldn't just like build something, stick a microphone in, in front of it and come up with a theory that would never give you the answer. What you had to do was start literally with the laws of physics, like Newton's law, force equals mass times acceleration, and then combine all of the things, uh, the density of air and all this and come up with the answer. And I did come up with the answer and I did it right. And it was very painstaking. It's like, I, it's like, okay, you have to go back to, you know, rubbing sticks together to make fire. Okay. Like, discard civilization and start over. I mean, that's kind of what I was doing. And it was, it was, uh, it was a huge pain in the butt and it was very tedious. But, but in the end, it was very satisfying. It's like, I know that I know that I know that F equals MA. So let's start with that. And, and you could derive this whole big complicated thing. And, and I knew what that felt like. And and that is the certainty of, of science as applied by an engineer. Um, you know, every cell phone, every Apple iPhone that rolls off the assembly line is a triumph of scientific testing and thinking and theory. And, like, all the theories about how the transistors work may not be entirely correct, but they're correct enough that the phones work. And, and I said, okay, I... Darwinism is actually an engineering theory. It's a theory about how things get engineered. And so I ought to be able to get to the bottom of this. You ought to be able to know. You ought to be able to get past like just having your head bounce back and forth between this authority and that authority. And that's what I did. Um, and, it was, and it was so satisfying to, at, at, at a certain point, and I could get into the story of how – I finally did touch the bottom of the swimming pool and I knew where I could start to get to the bottom of this. And and that's really where it began. Okay, so and m- most people have never done this, but it can be done.
0: Well, let let's let's set the the table here a little bit more because we're talking about one of the leading theories in science, if not the leading theory, which is evolution. And it's amazing to me, for example, how so much that is unknown, such as the uh the beginning of the universe and the change in time over the universe, uh diseases, uh, viruses. How how much science ascribes uh the the movement of of the of the physical world, the change of the physical world to the concept of evolution. It's like it's like the go to Default concept default concept of science, but so few people really understand the workings of Darwin, and this is where things get interesting and so what I'd like you to do is because you do such a good job of this in your book let 's talk about for those who don 't really understand Darwin and just think it 's some kind of you know unalterable theory here what what are the core? Principles of Darwinianism or neo-Darwinism that that you focus on and that you find fault with. So let, let's talk about the the, uh, the core elements here, so we set this up for for a little discussion.
1: So let's start with what Darwin did and didn't do. Okay. What Darwin came up with is actually very simple. He said hey, instead of everything being created individually, every species was a miraculous creation. Species came from each other, descent with modification. So, you know, dog gives birth to another dog, but the new dog is different, and some of the differences are better, and some of them are worse, and the better ones survive and the worse ones don't. that's, That's called natural selection, and there you go. And essentially, that's what Darwin's theory was. And Darwin didn't understand cells. He didn't understand DNA. He didn't understand genetics. Um, he didn't understand any of that. He just had this descent with modification, with natural selection, selecting things. And um, as, a, as a wide, broad, generalized umbrella theory, uh, it, it, it was fine. Now, it didn't really explain where anything came from. And furthermore, it didn't explain where the modifications came from. Um, so it didn't really explain much of anything. Okay, It was just a different lens of, of looking at everything. Well, so, you know, I don't really have any disagreement with what Darwin originally came up with. Um, and, you know, Darwin, Darwin wasn't an atheist. He also he also didn't have any idea where the first cell came from. Furthermore, he had a ridiculously oversimplified conception of what a cell actually was. Um, so, you know, he didn't actually get that far. Well, then in the 30s and the 40s, um, some people came up with the neo-Darwinian synthesis and they said, well, actually, what's going on is... You, we now we we um, we sort of kind of understand genes and chromosomes, although they still really didn't um, and What happens is there's copying errors and there's just random changes in these genes And that's where all the variation comes from and then we we throw in like Mendelian genetics Like which kind of, you know, what color of peas is gonna grow that whole piece we stick those two things together and we have a unified theory of evolution, and we triumphantly bang the drum, and we say we've got this all figured out. Well, uh, the randomness part was wrong, and and this was this was where this is where I could be absolutely certain as an engineer that this was wrong. Now I, I got to back up, and I got to say, so so I have this article, this argument with Brian, and we're in this little bus in China, and we're arguing about. Uh, all of a sudden, we're arguing about science and evolution, which I didn't know that much about. But I go, Brian, look at the hand at the end of your arm. Like, this is a really fine piece of engineering. I said, you don't think that's just a random collection of accumulated accidents, do you? And he goes, hold on, buddy. He goes, hold on. You know, let's say there's a million falcons are a billion falcons flying around. Every now and then, one of them has a, a mutation in its genes, and maybe it gives it, it better eyesight so then it can outcompete all the other falcons, and pretty soon it takes over the population, and then all the falcons are better. He says, Yes, that can happen, and no, like you don't need a designer for your hand or your arm. Well, I wasn't sure that I bought that, but what I knew was that A, I knew most biologists would agree with him and not with me. And B, I didn't know. And C, engineering and science have all kinds of crazy surprises in them that nobody would ever believe unless they went to the depth. And so I knew I didn't know. And I just knew I didn't know. I said, I'm going to find out. And either... The biologists know something the engineers don't or the engineers know something the biologists don't because I've never seen anybody in engineering design anything this way. I designed the speakers of the 94 Ford Probe, the 95 Jeep Cherokee, the 95 Acura Vigor, the 96 Dodge Stratus, uh, for example. Um, And then, you know, later I, uh, I worked in automation. I've never seen anybody design anything the Darwinian way. So... Who's right? And in a way, I went. So, so that so this is a this is a really uh, good
0: way to describe the 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 debate and, and the and the conflict here because stripped to its essence, Darwinianism is based upon the quote unquote natural selection of favorable random mutations and and a lot of people think well that's fine and if you give something a billion years like your like your brother was saying Brian yep. if you give something a billion years well who knows you know anything could happen kind of thing and so it's sort of like uh it sounds like a very sort of questionable theory to anybody i think to to when you throw the word random in there but then but then the but then the time element comes in and to me it's it's like a lot of hand waving or hocus pocus that time is going to cure the problem but yeah. but it, but it actually is deeper than that and uh, and and I like and so let's so let's move on here what how did you proceed to evaluate this theory of random mutations
1: well what i found out was that time is your enemy not your friend yeah. in this situation yeah, that's good. um and so i I wanted to know, okay, what can a random mutation do? What can it accomplish? Is it possible for random changes in DNA to eventually accumulate into better eyes and better arms and wings and all this other stuff? And so I was floundering. I mean, for quite a while, I was really just, I mean, okay, I I have an obsessive personality and you can look at my other work and I've done a lot of other things. Um, I, so I, I buy, I, I go buy dozens of books and I, and I'm reading all these websites and I'm, I'm reading both sides and, and, and I'm looking for sides that aren't even on either side and I'm just going crazy, but I'm lost. And finally one day it was this epiphany moment. And by the way, in your book, the collapse of materialism, you talk about epiphanies and I had one and it was like brain on fire. And and here's what it was, which was in 2002, I wrote a book called Industrial Ethernet for the world's largest um, professional society of process control engineers. It's called the ISA. And I wrote a book called Industrial Ethernet, and this is how the ones and zeros go across the wire. Because I worked in industrial networking for six years. The company I worked for designed a chip. I was deeply involved in, in the industry, and uh, this was in the late 90s, early 2000s, when the world was was on fire with going digital. And so I wrote this book for process engineers uh, on how ones and zeros go across an Ethernet cable, which uh, that probably sounds like a really great like sleeping pill for most people to read a book like that. <laughs> But when you when you peel the layers, it actually is very interesting. And it's a it's it's an amazing technical accomplishment that everybody now takes for granted that you can just like drive down the expressway talking on your cell phone. You have no idea all the technology that's making all those messages go back and forth. And 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 it's it's really amazing and it's really fascinating. And and what I realized was bam, and it was like, bam brain-on-fire moment, I'm, I'm reading about DNA, I'm reading about chromosomes, the genetic code, uh, start codons, stop codons, all of this, bam, I'm like, oh, my word. DNA information and digital packets on the Internet are almost the same thing. In fact, mathematically, they are identical, um, the formal term in science for this is isomorphism. It is the basic mathematical properties of the two systems are identical. Okay? And, and these exist all over the place, and engineers use them all the time. In fact, I used isomorphisms to solve my acoustics problem where when i would get stuck on the acoustics part i would open an electromagnetic fields and waves book i would figure out how they solved them electromagnetic waves and then i would go back to the acoustic waves and it would solve my problem and and engineers do this all the time like oh my word i can figure this out this is digital code this is code in fact so so dna it has it has um it has Words in in the genetic language that say, start a message here. They have words that say, stop a message here. Um, There is redundancy where a message is backed up multiple ways. It's transmitted multiple ways so that if one is broken, the other one stays fixed. Um, There are checksums which ensure that the message got sent correctly. There are error correction systems that say, hey, this is wrong. Go back and fix it. Oh, my word this is crazy. I can study evolution as a software engineering problem. I can study evolution as a digital code problem. In fact, all the way since the 30s and 40s, these guys have been saying it's just random modifications of digital code, and that makes evolution. And I said, I can figure this out. Wow. And I mean, talk about like, that's got to be one of the like the top five brain on fire moments that I've ever had my whole entire life when I connected these two worlds. And it it took about 10 seconds to see the connection, and then I've spent the next 10 years connecting the dots. Yep, 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 this is the same, this is the same. Now, there's other things that are different. This is not the same, this is not the same, this is not the same. But I actually came up with this catalog of these things are the same, these things are different, And you can you can have a definitive answer to this question of does traditional Darwinian evolution work?
0: Okay, so this is Philip Camello. This is conversations beyond science and religion. I'm speaking with Perry Marshall, the author of a brand new, fascinating and groundbreaking book. It's called Evolution 2.0: Breaking the Deadlock Between Darwin and Design. And we're talking about the mysteries. of the DNA code and the similarity between DNA and digital code and I'd like to say something here that how important this is because it seems to me Perry, that our modern evolutionist and I will use uh, uh Richard Dawkins as the personification of this, although he's not the only one, but he's a he's sort of a um good to put up there to represent this side of the debate. To me, they take so much for granted in evaluating uh, evolution. Uh, and, and the number one thing, I think you put your finger on it, and I would completely agree, and that is the intelligence of the DNA molecule. It's, it's, it's as if they assume that nature just happened to plop down this molecule that, that hands out codes for how to build living things on, on the Earth and this is just something that happens to be there. And then, and then they could watch it do all of its magical things, such as creating organisms and creating change, and without even recognizing that the, the, the information and intricacies of this molecule essentially boggle the mind. And and so, so to me, Perry, this is extremely important, and I I really resonate with what you're saying here because to, it, it's a function of s- certain scientists taking something so amazing for granted. And so I I like what, based of, and and I think you bring something to this because of your background. Want to just talk a little bit about how you compared the the DNA code. With
1: other codes and what that really means. So, what is a code? A code is when a symbol represents something other than itself. So, when you press A on your computer keyboard, a 10000001 goes through a circuit and into a chip, and then an A appears on your screen and um and if it's a b, then it's like a one zero 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 one zero, and so one zero 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 one is a, and one zero 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 one zero is b, and there's a table, and you can look it up, and so you make a little table. it's like this is a, and that corresponds to one zero 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 one, and then when the that those bits come back, then we translate it back into an a, and so you have the symbol and the referent and the referent and the symbol and um, all codes work this way, and all languages work this way, and uh, we create codes every time we invent a new acronym, um, we we create codes every time there's a new word in the English language, uh, when you have a little piece of slang that just you and your friends came up with, you know, all of that is codes, and we're swimming in codes, and there's zip codes, and barcodes, and QR codes, and in uh, HTML and PHP and like in everything, every single file format on your computer, whether it's a Excel spreadsheet or a word document or an MP3 file, they are all just different kinds of codes and each one has a different language. So dot MP3 is a language and dot doc is a language and dot XLS is a language and HTML is a language. They're all just codes. And like, everybody actually understands codes, at least to some level. Well, DNA is a code, too. GGG is code to make glycine. Uh, AAA is code to make lysine. And you can look at any ge- genetic table, any genetic code table, and any biology book, and there it is right there. And when when uh, DNA is is... Transcribed into RNA and then translated into amino acids. That's an encoding decoding process. And so there. So this is very, very, very well understood. It's the cornerstone of the entire information age that we live in right now. Um, the, this, uh, Skype conversation that we're having is possible because of it. The internet is possible because of it. It's because of the ABC one, two threes of digital codes. And so it's so like, okay, so it's all ones and zeros. Um, and so where do the ones and zeros come from and how do ones and zeros get built? Well, this led to a really interesting question. I said, okay, so. Darwinism says, you know, a dog has puppies and the DNA from the dog to the puppies, there's an accidental copying error. So this is like Richard Dawkins 101. This is Jerry Coyne 101. Dog has puppies. Puppies get DNA that's slightly corrupted from copying errors and copying errors accumulate and most of them are bad, some of them are neutral, and a few of them are good, and you get better dogs and better dogs and better dogs, and you get evolution. Presto, it's so simple, isn't that great? Well, so I have a question for everybody. How come software never gets written that way? We yeah, we have an entire internet with who, who knows how many trillions or gajillions of gigabytes of files all over the place and they're getting copied back and forth all the time and people are driving up and down expressways talking on their cell phones all the time. So how come the signals don't occasionally get better when there's copying errors? How come the software doesn't occasionally get better when there's copying errors? And then we'll just use natural selection to clean it up. And how come Microsoft needs employees when, according to Darwinian theory, they should, should just need to buy a few million servers, mutate copies of software programs, and spit out the good ones, and keep the good ones, and get rid of the bad ones, and then evolution would be automatic. How come nobody writes software the way Richard Dawkins says life evolves? Yep. Why?
0: That's a good question. Yeah, I, I, and I think that that I think you're the first person to to raise that question, and I think that that sort of exposes, as you as you know, that that exposes a lot of the problem here, which is that uh, those who hold up natural selection and random mutation as being the quote unquote blind watchmaker uh, have, to me, a, a little overstated the case, uh, and. You you, you you sort of segue from the point you're making into this notion of noise, which I'd like you to talk about because this is connected to this this to me misconception that mutations can can create um a new organism or, or I mean the way I look at it is is to think that an amoeba is going to um convert itself into Cary Grant uh over mm-hmm. a couple billion years is a little ridiculous. I mean, it's not a little ridiculous; it's a lot ridiculous. But, but from from your experience with with noise in in the electrical engineering world, what 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 did that do for you in evaluating this
1: problem? So so let's just let me back up a step and let let me acknowledge that I have now stated that uh, you know Richard Dawkins and friends are saying something that's totally ridiculous. But I want to acknowledge that some people aren't ready to agree with me. Right. Okay. So, okay. I respect you. Like you're going, well, but yeah, but in millions of years and billions and billions of cells and stuff, like who knows what could happen? And you're back to that time thing. Okay. So let me explain what the problem with that is. There's a very serious problem with it. and, And here's what it is. So, so you and I were on Skype. I got my headphones on. I'm talking to the microphone, and and I've got this digital signal that's going from me to you to where you live and and back and forth. Okay. Now now our computers, or you know, we could be on walkie talkies, right? Or we could be on an analog telephone line. We we could be on uh, we could be mailing cassette tapes back and forth, like whatever it is. Noise is always our enemy. There is always static interference. There's always, you know, random noise from the sun. There's always somebody running an arc welder, um, or there's always a a car driving by, and it's always interfering with your signal. Okay. Now, an uneducated person doesn't really know um, whether that can ever help you. Well, well, in communication engineering, um, th- there's this guy named Claude Shannon, and he figured out all of the mathematics of communication in 1948 in a paper called A Mathematical Theory of Communication. And, and he defined all this stuff, and he got it down to a very simple, rigorous theory. And it, and it was extremely good. I mean, this is literally one of the top ten engineering papers of the 20th century I would say absolutely brilliant and there's there's nothing controversial about it 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 laid the foundation for the digital age we now live in and and he discovered something called information entropy which is he goes yeah I'm I got this walkie-talkie or I got the Skype connection and I'm trying to talk to Phil and there's all this noise going on how does the noise affect me and how do I get my signal through um, without the noise damaging it. Well, the the thing he discovered was information entropy is exactly the same math. The formula is identical for thermodynamic entropy. Now, what's thermodynamic entropy? Thermodynamic entropy says when the toast pops out of the toaster, it always gets colder, never hotter. Okay, yep. never. When you add noise to a signal, it always destroys the signal. It ne- never makes any, it makes it better, ever. Now, I could go into a big mathematical explanation, which I will not, but I'll just put it this way. In practical terms, in electrical engineering, in the people that di- design cell phones, the people that design radio towers and all that kind of stuff, the concept of adding noise to a signal to make it better does not exist it you will never find it anywhere now there's a few like related ideas like dither for example which i don't think we have time for that are they they are slightly related and and an uneducated person could think they're an exception they're not an exception the concept of adding noise to a signal to make it better does not exist any more than toast ever gets warmer after the uh, pops out of the toaster. Noise always destroys. And I could go into the math and statistics of it, which I won't because I don't think that's appropriate for a podcast. My, my book has a chapter called all about randomness. It's appendix one. And if you want to see a rigorous treatment of this, go there. It's in the appendix, not the main part for reason, but it doesn't exist when you're, when you're in a recording studio and whether you're using eight trap tapes, real or real digital uh, vinyl noise is always, always, always your enemy. And what I realized was what the Darwinians are saying is we add a little noise to the signal with every generation and one out of a thousand or one out of a million will be better. No, no, it will always destroy your signal. Now, this makes it really interesting because mo- here's, here's what I found. A lot of other people kind of sort of figured this out, uh, especially on the creationist side, and they stopped. And they said, therefore, evolution is a hoax. I didn't stop there. I found a whole world opened up to me when I found out, well, yeah, but see, there's a twist. There's this whole other thing going on that you never hear about from Richard Dawkins or Jerry Coyne or any of these Darwinian fundamentalists that are writing textbooks and educating the public about this. There's this whole other story that nobody's hearing at all, and that's where it got interesting.
0: Okay, so th- this is a good time for sort of a pause, and this is, this is, what, this is what we've done up to now. Which is that the orthodox Darwinian interpretation of evolution says that evolution occurs through the natural selection of random mutation, and for those who uh, I think apply common sense to me, it's that's always been a bit suspicious. Even even for a person on the street, random mutations—it just sounds weird. And what Perry is doing here is comparing this notion of random mutations to this electrical engineering and computer concept of noise and reaching the conclusion that as in terms of mathematics and logic, noise or mutations cannot create something better. It's only going to be worse, which I think is is a really important step, Perry, as we talked about in the beginning, because at the same time, that the darwinians basically saying say time heals all wounds it's really the opposite as you as you point out in the beginning time makes noise worse it's only going to disrupt corrupt the data it's not going to lead to something better but as you say this is where things get interesting because indeed things do get better
1: <laughs> there is evolution they
0: do. there is evolution so what so so that leads to well what is the mechanism so why don't you why don't you explain because then you then you look closely at the workings of the cell and you sort of came up with your switchblade uh, approach here that we have time to summarize and then we're going to move on to a little bigger topic but let's 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 why don't you talk about what you found when you did look
1: closer at this problem so i knew that in order in order for some cell three billion years ago to survive to now, let alone let alone multiply into all the different uh, ecosystems and diversity. And just to survive, it would have to have error correction. And I knew this. There's no way that code could survive without error correction. So where is it? And I started looking for it. And somebody sent me a paper, and it was by James Shapiro, and he was talking about Barbara McClintock. And I found I suddenly found exactly what, as a communication engineer, I expected to find, but more. And, and what I found out was that cells actually repair their own DNA when it's damaged, just like Ethernet routers and hubs and switches, okay? Um, you know, the, the equipment in your house that does your Wi-Fi, it repairs broken packets or has them resent when when there 's a problem, so you know somebody uh, somebody turns on a blender and there 's all this static going on in your house, all that equipment is compensating. Well, I found out cells do the same thing and Barbara McClintock in the 1940s uh, she was a geneticist and she was doing these experiments with corn plants and she was hitting corn with radiation uh, in order to damage the chromosomes and see what would happen and this This was equivalent to running an arc welder next to your uh, Ethernet router in your house and seeing what happens when the packets come in and out. And what the plant did was what your Ethernet router does, which the plant repaired the damage. But the plant actually did something that nobody's Ethernet router knows how to do. The plant came up with a repair. It couldn't restore the original, and so it reconstructed something different possibly even better and the plant went on and reproduced now this was flat out astonishingly amazing like oh my word what it was so incredible that when she presented um a her paper at a science symposium in cold spring harbor new york all of her colleagues were a combination of amused and angry that she would even suggest that a cell can rearrange and restructure its own genetics. But in fact, that's what happened. And 40 years later, she won the Nobel Prize. Yep, wow. Okay, and and this is just the tip of the iceberg. Um, because in Evolution 2.0, I describe it as a Swiss Army knife that cells have a battery, a Swiss Army knife, of different mechanisms that they can use to not only repair but restructure and re engineer themselves, and the the Swiss Army knife has five blades, one of them is transposition, which is what Barbara McClintock got a Nobel Prize for discovering one of them is epigenetics, which is cells switching genes on and off, like graying them out or silencing them uh kind of like uh, Pull-down menus in a software program getting grayed out. Like sometimes you can get to them, sometimes you can't. There's there's one called hybridization, which is when two species merge together and they double the number of chromosomes. Um, which uh, which uh, which is it's actually quite common and, and botanists uh, use it all the time. There's one called symbiogenesis, which is cellular merger acquisitions, which is that's another amazing thing. And then there's horizontal gene transfer, which is cells actually exchanging DNA with one another, which is why you have to finish your antibiotics, or the the bugs become superbugs. Now I just spit out like these five different things. Every single one of them is big as a big enough topic for a hundred PhD theses. So, I mean, this is a giant mouthful, but what I found was empirically, demonstrably, organisms rearrange their own DNA. They cut it, they splice it, uh, they reprogram it, they change their own genetics, and they do things that nobody in the software or engineering world knows how to do with human technology, and so this was just exponentially more amazing than anything the darwinists were talking about or anything the creationists were talking about. And I said, "Oh my word, why isn't anybody talking about this? Like why isn't this front page news?" Okay, okay, okay. I, so I, I don't get it. What what's the problem here?
0: Okay, so this this is this is a really good because now we're getting to really the the big issues what what you've described it can be uh, summarized as being an intelligent cell or or a mechanism uh, that we can only describe less uh, metaphorically perhaps which which puts this urge for survival inside the cell. Or inside some other thing in the body. I'm just going to call it the self for the time being, because we know that there is this, and this, you know, I I have a philosophy background, and so there is a lot. A lot of this comes from some earlier philosophers. That you know, the will to live, which is William James, the 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 will to survive. Uh, There there is this spiritual urging. Uh, that it's hard to describe in materialistic terms that everybody has you know the, the the will to live is 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 a really you know i think we all have it and it seems as if the cell itself with with these with this switchblade you just summarized has this urge to survive to adapt and to survive and and the big point here and if it should not be lost on the on the listeners which is this sure sounds like something intelligent or something goal oriented or both, as opposed to just a random walk in the park and and so 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 what where what is this the big question and you just put your finger on it, Perry, which is why haven't the neo darwinianisms or dar-, dar darwinians why haven't the Richard Dawkins of the world? focused on these mechanisms. What what do you think?
1: So Darwinism and natural selection has actually become a big, giant rug that you sweep unanswered questions under, but it's not actually an explanation at all. So when somebody says, I believe in evolution through natural selection, that's like saying... I believe in business success through bankruptcy. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, okay, yeah. you know, there's that's like a half truth. I mean, it is true that for every one Starbucks, there's like 10,000 other coffee chains that did go out of business. But it doesn't explain why Starbucks is successful. Okay, and and similarly, yes, like natural let's not underestimate natural selection. Like like um okay, has anybody ever uh like been in one of those uh multi-level marketing deals where they show you how well if you just get one person every month and all your people get one person every month, you're going to double and you know you you go from 2 to 4 to 8 to 16 to 32 and by the end of the year you'll have 16 million distributors. Yeah. Right? Well, you know that that sounds good and a, a naive person believes that but but they don't realize like how much stuff doesn't work the way it's supposed to similarly you know you ought to be able to breed two rabbits in your backyard and have 16 million rabbits in 2 years but you're not going to have 16 million rabbits in 2 years cuz wolves are going to come and eat them and all this other stuff and so, like, natural selection really does put a damper on the party. I mean, make no question about it. And it is a very powerful shaping force, but it's only it's only the last step. You haven't explained anything whatsoever about how you get an eye or an arm or a hand or anything else like that. And so what neo-Darwinists do is they take the effect and they try to turn it into a cause – They completely demolish cause and effect, and they just say, oh, yeah, you know, uh, business success through bankruptcy, business success through bankruptcy, business success through bankruptcy. And it just avoids them having to answer the real questions. But the real question is exactly, Phil, what you just described. Like, what is this will to live? What is this willfulness that life possesses? I mean, you can – you can go to YouTube and search for white blood cells eating germs and you can watch those suckers. I mean, are you, is is anybody going to sit here and tell tell me that that's not purposeful? Yeah. Okay. Well, what most people don't know is just as purposefully and and uh and goal-oriented as cells are in, you know, eating germs in your bloodstream, they also modify their own DNA. In real time, and I mean this happens all the time if if um, If you take your cup of coffee uh, and with some cream and sugar in it and leave it on the table for a few days, you know in about a week you 're going to have um, a bacteria culture growing on top of that. Well, if we take an eye dropper and put some poison in the top of that coffee um, the edges of that bacterial colony, those uh, those cells will rearrange, they'll change their DNA. Some of them will intentionally die or, or even kill themselves if necessary um, in order to protect the colony from the poison in the top of your coffee cup. And they do this all the time. Um, there's a lot of work by a lot of people. James Shapiro would be a, a leading person in this field. Um, showing that cells alter their DNA and the expression of their DNA all the time, and so in actuality the even though the Darwinians want you to think that we basically understand evolution and we have understood it for uh you know most of a century, the truth is we only understand like maybe one to five percent of what 's actually going on with evolution and the rest of it. Is a giant mystery,
0: and and this is this is extremely important. I think revealing, because as you as you point out, uh, evolution is sort of like the all-purpose ex- explanatory tool uh, for science, and and to me it is getting a bit old, a bit tiring that every everything uh, is is being. Uh, is being um, explained by by evolution. Sometimes I'm reading something. I'm thinking, well, if you just replace the word God every time you see evolution, it's basically the same thing. Uh, where it, it's like the God of the gaps. It's 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 the it's the it's the God of the gaps for science evolution. That is, and I think that the only way we're going to make progress here in putting together a more systematic, logical science is by questioning these things. In my own book, The Collapse of Materialism, I talk about how it's it's really an inconsistent theory because science says that the universe began with chaos. The chaos creates somehow this structured DNA molecule, which is clearly intelligent. But this DNA molecule with this code generates nonsense, but then the nonsense generates ordered structures so you go from chaos to order to chaos to order it doesn't make any sense and i I like your approach which is also very close to my approach which is that if you're if you're consistent you're going to say well there was some intelligence behind the cell there is some intelligence behind the cell which is why we have ordered creatures in an ordered universe you don't have to pretend as if being scientific means uh, bending or relying upon randomness, uh, which I think is a reaction against um, sort of biblical literalism. But now, since we're coming to the end, I want to go to the big question here, which is that you know, you started, or maybe you still are a Christian, and you started your quest with this open mind, um, and you reached these, this, the, uh, the conclusions uh, in your book, many of which, most of which, we had didn't have time to cover. But what what do you think is the source of this information, or the or the ordered cell? Where are you now in your thinking between the intelligent design school and the neo-Darwinian school? Where are you
1: after your quest? So I, I think in order to answer these questions productively you have to embrace a little bit of paradox and for me here's what it is so we do not know any way to get a code without intelligence and that's a fact and early you know if you go back back 10 years and some of the stuff is on my website and some of the different talks I've given um, my early approach was, DNA is a code. All of the other codes are uh, that we know the origin of are designed. Um, we got this one code. We don't know where it came from. Therefore, it's designed. Therefore, God. Now, uh, up to a certain point, I'm fine with that. However, th- there there is a problem, and and I think it, it it really is a problem, which is, you know, there isn't there isn't a scientist alive who gets to say. God did it. That settles it let 's go have a three martini lunch right 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 um and you know, and you know somebody like Isaac Newton or Boyle or any of the classical um scientists, most of whom were Christians, they would recoil at that. They would like well no you don't you don 't just get to say, "Well, God made it that way. you know Isaac Newton would say, "No, you have to understand the mechanism behind it like you don't get to say, oh, God made the apple fall out of the tree. You have to go discover gravity. <laughs> okay? Like, like your job, your job as a Christian, your job as a worshiper is to figure out what's going on here in this universe God made, not just assign uh, a miraculous explanation to everything. Now, what's been going on in the creation-evolution debate is it's really – the creationist miracles versus the Richard Dawkins miracles. They're both miracles. Right. okay? Random, random uh, A random mutation is not even a scientific theory. Why? Because you can't prove randomness in the first place, which is a whole other topic, which we don't have time for. What you can do is you can say, I believe that we live in a universe that somehow is divinely ordered and that we can discover more and more and more and more. We can peel the onion, another layer, another layer, and another layer, um, and we never stop finding layers and we never stop finding order, but you have to look for order in order to find it. Now, Darwinism doesn't look for order. It looks for random accidents and then it claims it found them, and then it stops. And that's why Darwinism is incredibly lazy. It is just as lazy as the creationism that it alleges to to replace. And and what you really have is you have two religions battling each other, and neither has any way of proving that itself is true. And so they're just faith systems. There's just belief systems. And what I said was, I want to follow the evidence wherever it leads. And this actually led me to create a technology prize called the Evolution 2.0 prize, which is currently at $3 million. And it's a search for a code that's not designed. And what I realized was the, the only way you solve this is you lay down the gauntlet and you say, I'm looking for empirical proof. Somebody show me how you get a code without designing one. Maybe there's a way. And if you can solve this, this would be hugely valuable. So I organized a, a group of private equity investors. You can go to naturalcode.org and you can read all about it. But I I think that goes straight down the middle. You cannot ignore the questions or the gaps that we have in science. And you can't just assume that they're impossible to solve. You have to use the scientific method. And when you do that, science stops being a religion and it stays science.
0: And I think this is a really good way to conclude the show, because it we tend to think that a scientist, and and really the, it's it's the um, it's the materialistic scientist of the of the Dawkins and Hawking vein that I'm talking about here, that they they are the purveyors of all knowledge and that they're practicing something other than religion. But when you actually, as you say, peel the the onion we find out that modern science and darwinianism is probably the leading example is is based upon a set of unquestioned assumptions and it's only by questioning those assumptions that i think we we get to a a pure and more logically consistent form of science then to me perry the problem is that the same one that darwin started with and the same one that permeates our, our, our curriculums which is that science considers its adversary biblical literalism and it, 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 it pretends as if the opponent is, is, is Jesus Christ or is somebody that's taking the, the words of Genesis literally we need to move beyond that simple dichotomy and realize that there may be a third way to explain this. And I think that your work, uh, Evolution um, 2.0, Breaking the Deadlock Between Darwin and Design, is really a step in that direction, folks, is because it's showing that when you're critical of both sides of the debate, we may be able to reach a middle ground here, or or something that I would say transcends, goes beyond science and religion goes beyond darwinianism and intelligent design to something that starts making more sense and the last point i'm going to make Perry, and i'll let you comment on it even though i'm extending my conclusion here is that to me science has to get out of its head that that they can't be scientific and have an intelligence in the curriculum this is the problem they they think that Practicing science means getting rid of anything that's called a mind, God, divine, spirit, that that's all of a sudden that's unscientific. And that to me is the problem. They can't, and this is this is why they cannot give up this random mutation thing, in my opinion. So I'll let you comment on that, and then tell us about your, your website and how folks can find your book.
1: Yeah, well, you know, I, I think that all the acid you need uh, to kill Darwinism is electrical engineering. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <laughs> okay. That's good. If look, if, if the Darwinists were right, Bill Gates would not have to have a payroll. OK, he, yeah. he could he could buy <laughs> um, 10 million servers and just grind away. Yeah, um, there's 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 a chapter uh, in my book about genetic algorithms, which there's a whole entire science of of um, computer programs that use Darwinian processes uh, to to improve code. But they're not neo-Darwinian. They're evolution 2.0 type processes. Um, and, and so, so really, you know, an electrical engineer is a reductionist in the sense that, you know, we believe in the laws of physics and we do all that stuff. But in another sense, like, well, if you want to create something, you have to create it, you know? And so like, to me, there's not really any conflict and the the job of anybody is to follow the evidence where it leads. And if the evidence shows that there's intelligence somewhere, then let's go find it. Right. Um if the cell appears to be intelligent intelligent, then let's figure out how it's intelligent. Let's not deny the obvious. Right. I mean it's very obvious to any six year old that cats and dogs and even uh white blood cells chasing germs around are in some sense intelligence. So let's get to it. Yeah, yeah,
0: and I think, and I, that's
1: that's what we need to do.
0: Yeah, and I think that that I think that is the moral of the story, which is follow the evidence, and the evidence leads to a designer, which it does. And I don't, and I yeah. do not mean, uh, for those wondering, a, a God in heaven. Nor do I mean Jesus Christ. I mean an intelligence, a mind behind creation, and that is where the evidence leads. And and you know it's like it's like I said in the beginning of the show or maybe be, before the show, Perry. Uh, you know, I personally have belief that uh, that, that that when all the, the debate is over, the truth remains standing, and and that is what the process of science is about. So uh, thank you for your time. It's been uh, a very quick hour plus, uh, but there's but there's a, a lot of to, to cover here we'll probably have to have you back uh you mentioned your your website to find your book i take it that's amazon and elsewhere
1: yes yeah, so you can get three free chapters of evolution 2.0 at cosmic com, and you can buy the book on amazon and uh you know i i really want to invite you you know whether you're a technical person or whether you're a philosopher or or whatever, you know, this book, it's written at a high school level. It's the first time anybody has taken these blades of the Swiss Army knife, as I call them, which have been known for the most part for 50 years. There's a whole bunch of science that most people just aren't hearing, and it's very well established. There's nothing, there's nothing controversial about transposition. Nothing controversial about the fact that cells rearrange their DNA. Any competent biologist knows this, but the public hasn 't heard it. I explain this in language that regular people can understand um, i 've got appendices in the background for technical people, or you can go deeper and I, I think this will change the way you see the whole entire world and
0: i I agree this is this is another one of those must have books for those who want to open their minds and and uh, and really go beyond. Uh, the orthodox science science and religious views of the world. This is Philip Camella. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.
1: You've been listening to Conversations Beyond
0: Science and Religion, hosted by Philip Camella. To find out more about Philip and his book, The
1: Collapse of Materialism, visit thecollapseofmaterialism.com.